here respected. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. Well, my brother, I am so excited to be with you and see you. You look great. Uh, uh, it's amazing. You got a lot of books there. I see you've been reading. I see. <laughs> our audience, our audience can't see this, but uh, man, behind Ibrahim is just a bunch. He got. He has. He has. Either he's doing this in his house or he's doing this at the Library of Congress. I'm not even sure where. <laughs> <laughs> these are my. These are my books. The story I tell folks: My dad used to be a. He used to manage at early Barnes and Nobles in New York City in the in the early eighties. And so, um, and he actually used to manage, he used to be the manager of a bookstore in, uh, in Harlem. Okay. And, um, it was one of the only Muslim bookstores. So a lot of the Muslim community, you know, they were like, I know you, I know your face. And they really know my dad because it was, because they used to know that bookstore. And, um, so we had a lot of books. We just had extra books growing up. And then, um, hold on one second. Sorry. Maybe you want to, still doing some hybrid learning in this house so we got that's yeah. good all that is good stuff <laughs> so we um so the funny thing is that my mom used to make us when we she used to get annoyed with us i think she used to make us um she used to throw all our books on the floor and she used to like from our shelves and make us organize them by name of the book or by last name of the book or by first name in the book and she would do that in different phases so we got to know all of our books really well so now I figured out because of all that process that the best way to organize books is to color code them because you know wow. what the book looks like. So that's why the books that I have are all color coded along the color spectrum behind me. There you go. We have learned a new trick <laughs> in in organizing and also how to make your background look super fresh. That that is the both of those work well. Well, I have known this brother for quite some time. I love this brother for what he has been doing. And all the work that he's, we have been around each other for some time from way back when we were, I think before Green for All, when that was, we were yep. working on some different pieces. So that has been clearly over a decade. And so he is consistent. Um, but let me just skip the formal introduction for my brother Ibrahim Abdul Mateen, who is, who is an author um, and co-founder of Green Squash Consulting. Um, Got to get into that. I don't think that actually was, 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 I don't know. How old is Green, Green Squash Consulting actually? Just three years. Wow. Um, so that's, so, that, so that's, that's really uh, something there that is uh, super powerful. Um, let's get into that. First, let's get into um, you. Uh, for those who don't know, Ibrahim Abdul-Mateen is the author of Green Dean what Islam teaches about protecting the planet. Um, how, how old is that book now? That's going to be about, almost about eight years now, right? Ten years now. Ten years. Yeah, ten years. You know, when that book first came out, that was actually, well, it still is, was revolutionary for a lot of different reasons. Um, yep. I remember, I think, we were at, I remember you had just come up with the book, and maybe it was, one of those, remember, remember when it had those, what it was called, a green fest? I, I don't think it used to happen. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And you was working the circuit. You, was, you had to put your author hat on. Yeah, he was, he was, and you was. <laughs> you was I was trying working. my best. I had no, done. you was doing a lot more than trying. You was, <laughs> you was doing all right. I went out and bought a book. I was, I was so happy. I was like, man, I got to get this. And then he gave me one. I, listen, I went out and bought one, and then he gave me one for free. i like, well, man, you know, you, you back them days, you was, Broke activist. He was like, well, I got to pay this one forward then. So I, I actually gave uh, the one I'd bought to one of my, my dear brothers. So I was trying to get engaged in the movement. Mm, um, that's exactly and, right. That's the right way yeah, to do it. That was the way to do it. But anyways, if you have not gotten that book, that book is definitely still in circulation. Pick it up. It's an amazing read. And I mentioned earlier, he's also the co-founder of Green Squash Consulting, a management consulting firm based in New York that works with people, organizations, companies, coalitions, and governments committed to equity and justice and specializes in dynamic 
strategic and focused stakeholder management and partnership development. He sits on many boards, and one of those boards is the International Living Future Institute, which is encouraging the creation of a regenerative built environment. Um, so without further ado, uh, my dear brother, who has an amazing spirit, uh, and I know I'm looking forward to it, because we have so much, it's so much going on in the in the world right now. But again, I, I gave you kind of the your, your bio when you get ready to do your TED Talk. So I, I want you to give not, I gave the, the pre-TED Talk bio, but for <laughs> folks who don't know you, um, like you kind of mentioned like where you're from and, yeah. you know, and all those kind of things. But like, who is Ibrahim abdul -Mateen? You know, these questions always land so existential. Um, and this conversation is uh, even more uh, sort of heartfelt because it's now the last 10 days of Ramadan. Mm. And for the brothers and sisters who aren't aware, um, Ramadan is the month of fasting for Muslims that's observed by billion people around the globe. Um, that is uh, a, um, it's the, the month that Muslims believe that they're, they're all of the holy texts, the Quran, the Bible, the Torah, were all revealed during this month. And so, you know, if you are a person of faith and you read your Bible, you read your Torah, you read your Quran, this is a good time to be in that book. Mm. It's a good time to like dig in and um, spend extra time. If you read a, a verse a day, read 10 verses. You know, if you read a page, read 10 pages. Um, what I've been doing is spending my morning sort of mimicking my father and his um, sort of the path that he laid out for me when he converted to Islam um, by waking up early and um, praying the morning prayer and then, um, and then staying up to the sun rises and reciting Quran. And I think that that has, so just to give you some context about my, my trajectory, I think my, my parents both converted to Islam. They were both raised um, Christian. Um, my father and my mother are from, my father's family is from Virginia. Um, my mother's family were homesteaders in Nebraska. And um, they were, you know, the stories that we had growing up were just really powerful stories of, of uh, just working together um, and working in community. Uh, my great grand, my great grandfather was a, was what my, my mother calls a race man in, um, in, in Kansas. And he, uh, you know, he was, he was the go-to person uh, he was the head of weights and measures in Omaha, Nebraska at one point, which means that he was basically like the mayor of the black part of town. Um, so we were sort of infused with that, those stories as young people growing up. Um, and so we had this sense that we were um, bigger than the particular moment that we were living in, which was the crack era in Brooklyn, mm. right? And um, and, and I, I try and tell my sons, you know, we used to walk home by ourselves. You know, we used to we used to go home and there would be no parents there and it would be like no grownups um, because that was the time. A lot of young people don't even understand yeah. that context of like latchkey children and, mm -hmm. um, you know, going home and making a sandwich for yourself and for your siblings and making sure everybody got fed. Um, so we lived in the city and then we also lived upstate. So I've had this balance of sort of urban and rural experiences. And then my father always was really focused on getting us out into the woods and getting us out into nature and having to understand that connection. So for me, my, you know, my life story kind of weaves around, you know, my connection to faith, my connection to family, but also my connection to the natural world. Um, and I went to college in Rhode Island. I got a, I was lucky and blessed and also put in a lot of hard work and got a football scholarship and played linebacker at the university of Rhode Island. Wasn't like big time. wasn't like, you know, wasn't a big 10 school or nothing, but it was um, one double A football. But, you know, the beauty of that is that um, I remember my dad said to me once, he said, he, my older brother, he, he pulled us aside and he said, listen, um, he said, I don't have money to send you all to college. Mm. And he said, and I have, and I, at the time I, I, you know, I'm, I'm one of, I'm one of six. And so he said, you know, your sisters, I have to pay for them. So that's my priority. So you two, as my oldest sons, y'all have to figure it out on your own. <laughs> and he said, good luck. And he said, and he looked at my brother, my brother had great grades. And he said, you know, you're going to be able to get an academic scholarship. And he was looking at me and he was like, I'm not sure about you, the academic scholarship. 
So you might want to focus on getting your grades up, but also you get an athletic scholarship. You need to figure that out. And so me and my brother made an agreement and a pact, essentially, that we were going to figure that out. And so we both got, he got a track scholarship. I got a football scholarship. So it really was just a vehicle. I was not in love with football. It was not a thing that I loved to do, but it was just, a, it was a job. And that's what got me and afforded wow. me that opportunity. And that is what, just to circle back, that that is one of the places where I fell in love with the ocean and vistas mm-hmm. and breezes, you know, like when they, and, and Green Dean, I talk about when you're at the edge of a, an, uh, a cliff or on the top of a mountain and you look out and you see, um, you think, wow, look what God has created. And in reality, what you're recognizing is that you are part of that, which you're looking at, mm-hmm. right? Because God is the creator. You are part of creation with the create. And so you are recognizing that you actually are that. And so you're, you're elevating the part of yourself that's all connected to that. I spent countless hours sitting at the ocean and just, you know, really inhaling and thinking about that sort of existence and about where I, where I fit into this. The blessing of getting a full scholarship is that you get a bill back that says you don't owe nothing. You know, you, it says zero, zero, zero. And, you know, that's astonishing for a lot of people. And think about how many people are dealing with mountains of debt and they have to go take jobs that they don't care about. That's right. But I was able to, to dive into work that I cared about. So I've been working in organizing and, and um, mission-driven work from the day I got out of college. And that really was... Um, it was because I put in that, you know, that because of that opportunity. Yeah, that is so amazing. And I almost just wanted to thank you as you start off um, for talking with us during this Ramadan period. I mm. appreciate that so much. Um, and as someone who obviously um, understands the tenets of Islam, and and how important and powerful that faith is. I guess one of the things as I guess I know that this time is a time of sacrifice and reflection. And as you mentioned, a time for digging deeper. So I'm actually just even curious off the top, off the jump, that as you are now in this process, and one of the things that I love about my Muslim sisters and brothers is that many people don't understand is that when you're going through Ramadan, it isn't like you stop living. I know a lot of times my Christian brothers and sisters, they, uh, they, when they do their fasting, it's a big deal. They want everybody to know, I'm fasting, <laughs> and I'm going through this process. That's wonderful. I, oh, bless you, sister. Bless you, brother. But my brothers and sisters who are a Muslim, it's just like it's a part because it's obviously it's a, it's just a part of this there's no, in other words, it's interwoven into mm. just life. Like it's a part, it's obviously a time for taking that time, time for prayer, a time of sacrifice, a time for giving up. But so in that, there's a huge spiritual, this, I can imagine that the spiritual ways right now are on, are on 10. It's true. So, so <laughs> as you are just in this moment and on your, on your, as your, as your spiritual on 10, what is, what is hitting your spirit right now? Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, the thing that's been really knocking me upside the head so much before the pandemic, I've been, I mean, not before the pandemic, before Ramadan, was really reflecting on the narrative of the slave trade mm. and of like the fact that, you know, we understand the narrative as being we were snatched from there and brought here and put into this chattel slavery such that no human has ever been through this type of experience. You know, no group of people have been through this dehumanizing structure. Um, But what really struck me was just re-remembering, because I've read these books a lot and I just reflecting on them a lot, was the fact that, um, that many times, for centuries, the slave trade happened. For centuries. It wasn't like a couple of years. You know, we think of things 30 years and 20 years. This was like three or 400 years that people were going into Africa and taking human beings. And they were doing it because Black people were fighting against each other. Mm. And we think of it as Black people as a monolith, but really it was like thinking of like Europe, Europe if you think of it, because we know European history. 
it would be like if Europe, if Africans went into Europe and were like, I'm going to take some French people and I'm going to take some the British people. I'm going to take these Ger the German speaking people. They look the same in some ways, but they are they're definitely different. So the African folks that we are descended from were the same exact way. They look the same, but they're different people. Mm -hmm. They fought, they had beef, they had all. So the deep part that I was thinking about a lot was sometimes people fought wars to get slaves to sell, to get rich. So their intention was to make, to, to capture people and they didn't kill them. They captured them and made them into slaves. Mm. Now what happened and many times that the white slave catchers would go and whisper in the ears of either side and they would get the slaves from whatever side. Mm. So they didn't care what was happening. They were just having us fight against each other. That sort of template for how to divide us as people mm. is deep and then plays out all the way up to, you know, beef rap, this rapper against that rapper, mm -hmm. you know, W.E.B. Du Bois against Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. You know, Malcolm X against Martin Luther King. We always have these things and that's always played out. So those are some of the conversations I was having. And then the, the idea that you were like, our ancestors might be culpable, meaning my ancestors, my, my ancestor might have started a war. And that's why we ended up this way. Mm. Like we lost, we, we started a war to get to slavery and then we lost it. So the reason why that's resonant for me is I'm reading Quran a lot. And I'm getting into the story of the prophet Moses mm -hmm. and the story of Moses, you know, being put on the waters. And we know this story is resonant with black people. You know, we understand this thing being put on the waters and God protecting us. And then we arrive here and we are essentially learning and understanding in the house of the oppressor of Pharaoh. We live in Pharaoh's house. Mm. We understand him better than anybody else on the planet earth. So then the real question I've been having is, do we leave? Mm. And so I brought this to, and so I, I've been really wrestling with that. Like, do we leave? And is it enough to have this historical context of slavery is the only thing that binds us as a people? It's really been breaking my heart. And so that's what I've been sort of wrestling with. The one thing that a brother, um, this brother, Pastor Kali Mutu, who's a pastor in New York City, and I brought this to him and, and he and I had a great conversation. He brought up Jeremiah 29. And I don't know the passage, but I just know that the gist of it was basically like, we should, we, we have to stay rooted where we are. We have to build community. We have to, you know, we have to sort of build up a nation within a nation. And then it just really sparked in my head and a, a deeper re respect and reverence for all of the movements in the past, the nation of Islam and all these other movements that were essentially versions of that. Like we need to sort of really get really focused on building up each other. And the test for us as Black people from that part of Africa wasn't that we were, you know, we're not victims in the same way that we've always thought of it. The, our test was that, can you connect with your brother? That's right. And the test for white people is different. Their test is different. And they failed their test and we failed our test. So that's the stuff that's really been resonating for me this time. Um, and because Ram, Ramadan gives you a space where you, you, you know, it's the only spiritual practice fasting where it's just between you and the creator of the universe. It's not like I could, I could lie. I could say I'm fasting and then cough and turn off my, 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 my camera and take a sip of water and nobody would know, but me and God. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the part that you can't front. You can't fake it. That's the part right there. <laughs> that is, that is the part right there that no matter where you are, that you, you, you have to know that uh, you are not alone. Uh, in that aspect. Mm. Mm. Um, and then also this idea of like, whether you're a religious person or not, the notion that millions of people are doing the same thing at the same time, that psychic, emotional, spiritual energy, just a physical, if you manifest that into some form of energy wave, there's a hum right now on the planet Earth. That's right. And that is huge. And so if you can tap into that, you know, some of these soccer, people see soccer stars and they're, and they're playing full games and they're fasting the whole game. And they're like, how can you do that? I used to play football. I used to play track, run, play full basketball games in high school, fasting. You are more powerful when you're fasting. Right. So it's not like, how can you do that? It's like, of course you would do that. Hmm. You have that extra layer because, you know, we operate on this physical scale 
but the layers that of the unseen are we don't even know how many layers that dimension exists within you know just like if when they say that um that when at the end of days when god calls us you know god will point out a blade of grass or a leaf or a tree if you polluted that blade of grass or that leaf or that tree you will be held accountable for that hmm. individually but mm-hmm. conversely if you praise god or if you protected it that also will speak for your behalf on those things mm. right we have that that all of nature is essentially constantly in reverberating with the praise of the creator of the universe and we can we literally when we destroy something in nature when we pollute something we're silencing that voice mm. and that's something that you know i always think about in this time of year especially as the sort of everything in ramadan and spring because ramadan is on a lunar calendar mm-hmm. so it moves because it doesn't align with the solar calendar so it moves every year so it so it has this beautiful thing of like this is ramadan and spring a couple years ago it was ramadan in the summer ramadan in the summer is like it's tough you know <laughs> <laughs> but now ramadan in spring is like it's like it's like you know poetry right mm. it's like it lifts it's like everything's bursting out of its slumber and it just it's invigorating wow you know i have we have a dear brother um at the hip hop caucus uh tc muhammad and you know he's been with the caucus now for man i think 15 plus years and uh i, I didn't realize I didn't, I guess I didn't really just observe that, you know, Ramadan was at different, different points um, of the year. When you're around him, you realize that, you know, you're right. The spring, because it's close to one of those seasons around that kind of, you know, around those uh, other uh, religious occasions. Oh, yeah. You realize that when it's in the summer, it's like it is, it, it seems brutal. <laughs> it seems like it is like, man. Oh, man. But again, it is such a boosting. And, you know, as we talk about that, I guess for a lot of our listeners, as you know, who listen to The Coolest Show, are in the environmental movement. Um, Big shout out to them for making this one of the top podcasts and conversations. But in that, a lot of them um, maybe have a different faith tradition. They may be, you know, maybe either Buddhist or Christian or Muslim or Jewish. A lot of them are agnostic or atheists. Yep. Yep. Um, and one of the things I think for me is that, you know, all that is cool. But the one thing for me, though, is that I actually, just to keep it 100, I feel like to do this work without some kind of spiritual grounding is impossible. I, and I, I'm not even saying if, if I'm, I'm not saying if it's some higher, 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 higher being or... I'm just saying to have, if you don't have nothing to ground yourself and you're just pulling on yourself where you feel you're the only one who can do this work, I think, I think it's, I think it's impossible. And and so what are your thoughts about that, that, that connection or with that and how, or how faith and the environmental movement can connect to use those disciplines or, or, or is that important? Do you think, you think that, you think that that's important? to have those kind of disciplines to do this work. I think, I mean, you remember, we all, a lot of us remember the um, Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore's mm-hmm. um, sort of statement to the world to pay attention to these issues. And that was a real sort of wake up call for a lot of people. What he was relying on was a lot of statistics and scientific facts and, you know, undeniable evidence. And for those of us that are, who pay attention to inquiry, because many of our traditions, even our spiritual traditions, require inquiry and observation and um, pattern recognition, which is the basis of science, um, to as part of our path. Um, you know, if you're someone who meditates, you you meditate for. It's not about meditating once. It's about meditating for 10, 15, 20 years, and you understand the patterns and how that shifts you and your your the way you interact in the world. Um, so I think the, inco- the inconvenient truth was kind of like this big statement. And then basically the tone of the entire movement at that point was like, well, duh, this is a problem. Mm. And, you know, if you don't understand it, then you're stupid. <laughs> and that was literally the kind of like language of that movement. Yeah. And that's, and right. And so it was almost like dismissive. And so that's right. 
it was, it was, it, and that's why people be like, well, it's not for these communities, not for that community. Um, and so when we were in the, sort of that early phases of that part of the movement of that, cause there's lots of phases of the environmental movement, but in the phases of that movement, it was a conversation. It was basically like, well, we are the ones who get it and the other people don't get it. Um, we're the ones who see the other people don't see. And it was this real dividing line. And then there was, became this weird sort of dichotomy between, well, the faithful people don't get it. Um, and I, I, I was always like a little confused. It's, it's like, that's not going to win this. And that's not going to be protecting the planet. Cause it's, you know, there's lots of Catholics and there's lots of, you know, Pentecostals and there's lots of Buddhists in the world. There's, lo there's lots of Hindus, you know, everywhere in the globe. There's lots of Sikh and Jain folks. Um, we need everybody on this, on this, in this mission. So, um, I think that that, I think that that's sort of like the, the way I wrote Green Dean was really as a tool to be a translation device for people involved in the movement that want to connect with Muslims. Mm. So if you wanted to take these concepts and ideas, and a great example of that is you talk about, we talk about like um, extraction. That's a key understanding within this context. You know, the environmental movement is, uh, the toxicity in the environment is because we've sort of extracted resources out of the ground and we don't replenish them. We don't renew them. And we, um, and we, you know, and then, so the idea is that we want to regenerate instead of extract. We want to move away from extraction. And that manifests today with like, you know, extraction is taking oil and coal and gas out of the ground, right? Extraction economy was taking people out of places like Africa. The extraction economy manifests today in extracting data from all these social media platforms, right? It's a, it's a, an approach, it's an approach to capitalism that's going to take from regenerative approaches are, are very wholesome in a way and help and more healthy and they help repair and heal. And the way I frame it in an, a Muslim context, which I learned from a Christian was, um, we need to get our energy from heaven versus getting our energy from hell, mm. right? The energy from hell is energy that burns. Mm -hmm. That's coal. That's gas. That's, um, uh, um, oil, energy that we have to extract and rip and destroy whole mountainsides to get a little strip of coal. That's energy from hell. Energy from heaven is the wind and solar. And when you have that energy from heaven versus energy from hell conversation with someone who is like this woman in Virginia once said to me, my, my great uncle brought me to see them and they lived in absolute squalor in the community where my family is from. And he said, I'm going to show you what real poverty looks like. And this woman grew up with my great, with my grandmother. And she looked me up and down and she said, Lena, you're Lena's grandchildren. And she gave me that look like you ain't nothing. She's like, you don't even know the Bible. Mm. And I was like, ma'am, I'm sorry. I don't. Right. But if I could say to her, which I didn't get an opportunity to, I just shut up and just listened to her. But to people who the Bible is the word, the Quran is the word. Let's talk about energy from heaven versus energy from hell. Mm. Does God talk about, so if I'm someone who's an absolute rational scientist and this is the orientation that I have, but this is an organizing moment and we need to connect with as many people as possible, that's a tool to get through people's heads and get, get past that, that, that sort of like layer and penetrate a little bit so that they can at least listen to me and then we can get into other things. So I think that that's, it's a tool. It's a vehicle. Like everyone has to get organized and there's different ways to engage with other people, but we have to understand the language that we're all using so that we can get to the core of the issues. Mm. Well, I love that energy from heaven and energy from hell. I like that a lot. I have to, I might have to use that. You hear me? Oh, that's a good one. It's a good, yeah. <laughs> if, if you say, if he went there screaming somewhere on some corner, you say, I, I gave Rev that. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a good one. But speaking of that, you know, um, you know, this issue we're dealing with in regards to um, our movement and where we are with the environment. I, I, was, I was speaking actually in Long Island in New York, um, uh, not too far from where uh, Sean Bell had, mm -hmm. been, had been killed. Um, and for those who don't know, there, there was a, a Black Lives Matter movement before there was a Black Lives Matter That's right. movement. That's um, right. And so we were dealing with that. Um, but 
I was there speaking uh, at an Earth Day event with uh, uh, State Senator Sanders out of there, out of New York. Oh yeah, yeah, good, good, good brother. And so he had this, he had this event, and um, after I got finished speaking, a young brother came to me. Might have been thirteen, fourteen in that age range. And when he came to me, he said, "Rev, you know, um, I like what you said, man, and I, I wish more environmentalists looked like you." Mm. And mm. Uh, but this this is the thing that hit me with with all that's going on with OC what we see with racial justice and climate justice. He said this to me. He said, "But I got to ask you a question." He says, "Why do you want to save hell so bad?" Wow! Wow! Wow. Yeah. That's deep. Yeah. That's deep. I mean, I, I, I remember one of the first conversations, uh, you know, around Green Dean that I had. Um, I would go to communities um, and people would say, so what? Who cares? God's going to kill this, destroy this place anyway. You know, I think... Um, uh, What's the name? Or Kendrick Lamar has a, you know, he said, the earth is no more. Once you burn this mf mm-hmm. um, Why God, why God, why I got to struggle? You know, like that kind of, kind of wailing. I get that. I totally get that. I think it's less about, um, I think that that's presumptuous. You know, if you're a person who, whether you believe in a, a higher power or not, I think it's a bit presumptuous that one person's action out of the billions and billions and trillions of human beings that have lived in all of existence is going to change something. That's, you know, it's a bit presumptuous. I think in reality, it's a test on you and how you operate in that particular moment. You know, it's your choice in that moment. You know, our Buddhist brothers and sisters will always remind us that the past is non-existent. The future is a lot, is like a, an, an illusion. The mm-hmm. only thing you have is the present. The only thing you have is the moment that you're in at that moment right now. Um, and that's why the, our Buddhist brothers and sisters will tell us to think thoughts that will create the future. You know, you have this ideas in your head, you know, and people talk about it in different ways. But if we all were resonating in such a way that we were positively thinking about our future, then that would manifest into creating a positive future. Um, so. I think it's like, um, you know, you, you don't want to be in a situation where you are contributing to the problem in the present because hmm. you don't know what the future, how it will manifest out. Um, and I, that's, I, I always think that I'm going to try my best in this moment, in this time to sort of do my very best uh, and be, speak that truth. You know, I was listening recently to, a uh, tape of Paul Robeson, the great Paul Robeson, mm-hmm. giving testimony um, to Congress when they were trying to basically call him a communist. And whether he was a communist or not was irrelevant because mm-hmm. his statements to them were so clear, so razor sharp, so on point that he left no room for them to sort of, he was like, I am not that guy. So like, because he was absolutely able to look them in the eye and be completely present in the moment and not fall for their traps. Mm. So I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities to be hopeless or to be sort of lose energy for things. Um, but that's a trap. Mm. You know, I, you know I'm, I'm always like, what traps are being laid for me? What traps am I falling for? What traps have I already fell for? I keep running that in my mind. I've been scammed before. I've been hustled before, you know? Like, I'm like, okay, good. God gave me that and put, me that, put that in my way. So now I know not to go down that road again. So mm-hmm. to that young man, I'd say, you know, that there's a, um, you don't know what's going to happen. So that's the presumptuous part. You act like you know what's going to happen. No one knows what's going to happen. This might be the last moment in existence. Mm-hmm. At least we should be positive in our mindset about what, what the possibility is, not lying to ourselves. Because I think a lot of times people are over positive and they actually, and like, you know, a lot of that sort of, American exuberances to think, oh, we're the best. No, we're not the best. We have work to do. So what are you going to do for, for that project? Hmm. You know, in your book, 
the Green Dean, what Islam teaches about protecting the planet, you describe the earth as the mosque. Mm. Um, how does Islam teach people to care overall for the planet? Yeah, I mean, that, that it's like, um, so in Islam, we get wisdom and knowledge uh, and teachings that come from the Quran, which we believe is the word of, of the creator of the universe. And then also um, from the example of the prophets, um, in particular, the, what we, who we believe is the final prophet, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And um, he said, anywhere you, may, anywhere you may be at a time for prayer is, is, uh, is, a, is a place for prostration, is a place where you can pray. So the idea of sacredness of a house of worship, a church or a synagogue or a temple, people understand that there was like rules, right? You don't kill anyone. There's no fighting in a church. You know, if there was like beef in a neighborhood or in a community or in a wartime, the church would be the sanctuary. The church would be where they would bring the sick people and the elderly people and the children and the women, and they wouldn't drop bombs on the church. Um, so that sort of mindset of sacredness and the rest respecting that has been, you know, like a lot of people have destroyed sacred places, which is horrible. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but that mindset of sacredness is the way we should approach everything, every place on the planet, right? Every place on the planet has, should have that reverence. We should mm -hmm. not spill blood anywhere on the planet. We should mm -hmm. not kill anybody anywhere on the planet. You know, that's the approach that we should take. And it's the same approach in, in some of our communities. People will throw litter on the ground and you're like, you live here, bro. Like, why? Like, what's, what's that about? This is your, this is your block. You want your block to stink? Right? Like you should have, like, this is why communities that are getting gentrified, they're getting gentrified because why? Because at some point there was massive disinvestment, redlining that pushed black people so that they couldn't own homes. But there was always some people in that neighborhood, black men and black women and brown men and brown women that always swept up the street, that mm. always picked up the garbage. Indeed. Right? They made those places attractive. And then people came in later like, oh, look, look, someone on this block cares. Mm. So to me, it's like that mindset of uh, um, that sacredness of your space and of your community and your home. That's the approach. Um, I think that's a critical piece of the conversation. But another obviously piece is you will be judged by what you did around you. Like in assignments, like our, our relationship to the natural world is in essence, the actual test, the ultimate test of our existence, right? Because this is what we have before us, right? The whole notion of scarcity, which has been prominent in our, in sort of a capitalist context, the idea that someone's going to have to go without food, someone's going to have to go without water. Someone, sorry, someone just goes unloved. Mm. Someone can't have, a, someone, some people just aren't going to have a house, right? We've accepted that as like the norm. But I think it was Dr. Martin Luther King that would say that these are the great lies of the age that, you know, that, that white people are superior to other people. The lies of our age are that it's just, this is just the way it is. Like that there's just not enough for everybody, right? And if you're lucky, you're going to be one of the ones that gets rich. This is a lie. The reality is that we actually have enough. So the fundamental test of a human being in the Islamic context is, what are you going to do with what you have? Because and there's a, another hadith, which is a saying of the prophet, that one meal is enough food for two. And food for two is enough food for four. Meaning we have to learn how to share what we have better and that is about consumption, it's about materialism, it's about this fundamental idea that your value is not based on what you can make, create, or destroy. Your value is based on your knowledge of who you are and how you treat other people and your relationship to the creator of the universe. And so everyone has an intrinsic value. Your value is not because you're black or you're white. Your value is not because you're rich or you're poor. Your value is not because you're a woman or you're a man. Those are, those are illusions. You as a, your soul is, has intrinsic value because it was created by the creator of the universe, period. Everyone has value and every animal and every plant has value. So then the question is, are you going to squander or ruin something that has intrinsic value? That's mm. part of the test. Mm. Let me ask you this question because I know I get access a lot, as you know. Uh, a lot of folks sometimes don't know I'm, a, I'm actually like a real reverend or a real minister. <laughs> they don't, they don't, they think it's like part of my uh, 
hip hop. I guess they think I'm like Pastor Troy for, <laughs> or something like that. I'm not sure. Um, which is cool. I mean, actually, it's, it's, it says a lot. I guess it says a lot about this my this how I how I vibe or how I carry whatever I might do. But um, you know, I'm a bona fide minister, and when they when, when they do find that out, then it becomes they switch it to then they want me to speak for all Christians, and <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm definitely ain't the one to speak for all Christians. I mean, you can I say I I can add my say. Or for all everybody religion, speak for all of them. Um, so this is kind of a two-parter. Um, one, do you feel sometimes you are forced to speak from a, from a place of identity? Um, you know, as be always to speak for all all Muslims uh, in that regard. And 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 two, I'm curious um, as to knowing you've not been in this movement for a while. And we know what this movement, the majority of, of the climate movement, even though it isn't the majority of what the the, the, the world climate movement, the, more, the majority of the climate movement in America is predominantly a white-led movement. And I sometimes feel that when they approach spirituality, it is transactional. Mm. It is, mm. to me... It can be, and it's it's not like a spouse to a spouse, where it's one you love as your spouse, mm. but it sometimes can feel like person to prostitute, mm. where it feels like it's just, I'm going to get what I want to get. Mm. You give me that, and you go about your business. Mm. I feel that way. Maybe, am, am I, and so the two things, do you feel like you to speak for Maybe from a place of identity of all Muslims, and do you feel this movement sometimes is transactional with people of faith? Yeah, that's amazing. That's an amazing thing. Um, you know, I do. I, it's important for me to, um, you know, the identity question is really interesting to me, and I, I talk, I think about that a lot because I'm like, you know. Like I said in the beginning, like as a Black American, is that enough of a binding identity, you know, for me to feel, you know, ultimately proud of who I am? Because we are part of this great experiment, was which was really rooted in white men doing whatever they wanted to do. Mm. They could come into America and take people's land. They could march from one sea to the next sea and take everybody's land. They could take people out of another country and bring them here. They could rape people. They could break every rule under the sun. I mean, the, the whole notion of freedom was really just freedom to do whatever white men wanted to do. And then we are part of this enterprise. So, I mean, we have this like really amazing moment now. If we can just actually be honest about that and kind of tear away some of those, those deceptions and say, okay, we're here. Because if you talk to our native brothers and sisters that are from this land, from Turtle Island, They'll say, no, 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 no. People don't have to go back. We have to figure out who wants to actually stay here and work together because that's actually the work. So the identity question is always really interesting. So I always present myself as, yes, I wrote a book about Islam and the environment, but I really wrote a book about Muslims who work in that space. Hmm. Um, and there's no way that I can speak for all, but I can definitely reflect sort of the basic orientation of, I think, the Muslim community um, in some way. And so I do feel in some spaces that I have a responsibility to present a very um, clear and consistent and concise explanation of what we believe um, in a way that will hopefully break through some of the sort of larger narratives of what has been said or what has been executed through the colonial project, because a lot of Muslim lands were colonized through mm -hmm. slavery's lens, because a lot of Africans that were born into slavery were Muslim, and, and they, we forgot about all those things. Um, so I do, have, I do feel that pressure. There's no question about it. Um, and sometimes I own it, and sometimes I sort of step back from it. And what I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll find scholars and people who are more qualified Islamically as scholars to, to basically be in certain spaces. Because I'm more of a, a, a champion for those ideas, 
And whereas someone might be an actual scholar who studied the text and studied the historical context. But the beauty of this is that that's expanded and now there's a lot of people interested in this work. And so there's lots of different voices from the Muslim perspective. So I was part of sort of like reminding people that this is part of our faith. And now it's like a lot of people have gotten a message. The, the other piece of it is that um, there is a sometimes like, oh, no, we need a Muslim on this panel. Mm. Oh, no, no, no. We need like, um, you know, uh, or, or the worst part is when they're like, we need a, a progressive Muslim. Mm. I'm like, mm. I don't know who you need because I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know what you're saying there. There's a lot. You're putting a lot of layers in that because I'm not going to just go along with what your perception of what is acceptable to be. And that's the transactional piece, mm. right? They're like, we, we need to fill this slot and you kind of fill this slot. So can you come over here and play this role for us? Um, I don't do any of that. So if I have, if I sniff that out, I'm, I'm not, I don't get involved. Mm. Yeah. That, that, that transitional piece is a little, um, it's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> uh, I just, I'll leave it like that. Let, let me actually get, I have, I have a, Few more things. I, I, I just definitely get your expertise on. I mean, I'm so thankful for your time. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna give you like I'm, I'm gonna give you like a series of, of a question, and cool. you can kind of just pick how you want to to answer it. So this this first first one. Let's go to just transition. So um, as we get into that, we think about that as we talk about transitioning whole economies, and as we know, yeah. many of the folks who will have to bear the brunt of transition live in the Muslim world and are also transitioning from U.S. imperialism. So this is my kind of round robin. You can kind of pick and choose or just kind of lump it all together here. So what does just transition mean to people of faith? What does it mean for people outside of this country? Um, tell me some who are the leaders who are calling for a just transition in the Muslim world. And this one in particular, War, war on oil is and has been a site of resistance for folk who are not always seen in their fullness by the culture, but as a caricature. So can you talk to us about what it will take to engage communities um, without this lens? Yeah, wow. Um, I mean, the just transition to me, um, I mean, at the core is something that is not extracted, decarbonized. Um, that is deployed in like deep consultation and deep partnership with local communities. Um, and, and also the sort of, it's exploring ways that people can own and manage and work um, to have ownership models, to really shift the, the dynamic, the power dynamic so that you're not in a um, sort of, it has to be something that's transformative, that trend, that really that really shifts up the dynamic, that shakes up the dynamic, so that you have it's not these divided silos of I'm black and I'm white and I'm rich and I'm poor and I'm I'm Muslim and I'm Christian. Um, we actually have a lot more in common than, um, and I think part of a just transition will bring us together in a, in, a, in that way that will re recognize and uh, you know one of the classic ways that you see us divided is just even the idea that someone could be a policeman and not a policeman. You know, that they might be from the same hood, but now you got a badge on, now you got a uniform, so now you, you're different. Like, that's, you know, that's insane. <laughs> um, no, we're still pawns in a larger structure that's forcing us to be fighting against each other. A lot of Black people get, if you get arrested and go, get into a criminal justice system, the criminal system, the cages system, and who's playing the, the, the PO? It's a Black woman. Right. They're like, mm -hmm. you know, they're just there in the, I mean, the, the CEO is a black woman. And that, so you, you get black men and black women in the jails and it's, re, it's reinforcing this antagonism and that's design, right? That's like designed to keep us separate from each other. Um, a just transition will help sort of break down those barriers. Um, the U.S. imperialism part is really intriguing to me. Like one of the things that the Pope's encyclical was really powerful. Um, uh, um, encyclical on the environment, Laudato Si, which he basically critiqued capitalism. Mm -hmm. And um, he did it speaking to all of humanity. So the voice and the, the, the tone was like, all of humanity, pay attention. Given the context of all, like that was a really powerful document. The Pope 
Like they know before capitalism. So he's like, hey, capitalism's not good. And this is what it's created. This environmental mess that we're in, this, this mess on our ecological crisis that we're in. So I think the colonial project that was part of capitalism where you, um, and the imperialist project that was part of capitalism as part of all these systems and um, has created sort of like different tiers within the, within the world. And for most of, um, for most of the people in the Muslim world, they had been colonized as part of that project. Hmm. So the beginnings of the environmental movement for many places were when they liberated those lands. And I talk about this in Green Bean, that mostly the real environmental movements, as we think about places like Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in terms of population in the world, places like um, Iran, which had to deal with that got invaded by American and British forces when they wanted to nationalize their oil. The only reason why you have this whole chain of events that led to the Iranian revolution and um, Iran being a, sort of a pariah in the world stage is because they wanted to nationalize their own oil. Hmm. They wanted to control their own land and control their own resources. And the colonial and imperialist American and British power said, no, you can't do that. So they had a reaction to that. So that first step was liberating land. In Africa, people liberated their land. They took control. And in some places, they mimicked the forces that had been there before. So then they mimicked those forces and those forces of control. And in the Middle East, they just got fat and started making mad money. You know, they were like, oh, this is great. What's happening right now is that they're recognizing that that has not been overall a good thing. And so they're, they're starting to shift their money and move it in, in a certain way. But I, I think what, what we need to do is like recognize that there's like a, there's always an opposition. There's always an undercurrent that's fighting against the dominant culture and the dominant system. So just like we're, we've been for decades fighting against police oppression in our communities, in Iran, there's been an environmental movement since the 1950s and 60s. Wow. A very well-organized environmental movement that has pushed the Iranian governments in different phases of the Iranian government for, for decades. But we don't know about it because that's not a part of our conversation. In Indonesia, there's a massive environmental movement because they, are, they have threat from rising seas and, and other situations that might be from climate change. Um, and in places like Qatar and Abu Dhabi and Dubai, they don't have any water. They can't even drink water. They have to import all of their plastic, like water and plastic bottles. So that, and they're recognizing that the way that they've been living on this sort of like ele elevated status with all this money from oil from over the globe is not sustainable. So they're starting to take some of that and vet and investing that into other things. I did some talks in Sharjah, which is part of the United Arab Emirates, and they were taking plastic and turning it back into fabric and thread because they have so much plastic bottles. They were like, we don't want any more plastic. We don't want zero. We want to go zero waste by 2050. So they have really strong targets and goals because they see that the way of life that's overconsumptive is ending. So I think what's going to happen, and in, and in Africa, of course, West Africa, you know, since they sort of like the industrial movement skipped over them, they have an opportunity as in, in their development trajectory to sort of be better than that. Mind you, in the Gambia, there's still, which is a largely Muslim country, they're still swimming in plastic because that's the stage that they're in in their process. But there are efforts that people are coming in and saying, we can, we, you guys can do better and actually get ahead of some of these other nations if you make better choices that are, that are regenerative now, that are about that just transition, and you leap over some of those mistakes, those greedy mistakes, and you make better decisions now, um, you, can, you can do that. So I think that's one. And then the last one I'll mention is this notion of, 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 of permaculture, um, where people are really doing demonstrations. So the idea is this. You have all these war-torn lands, places that have been scarred by war and bombs and mines and dead bodies. There's this whole notion of how do you make deserts bloom again? How do you make them burst with life? And there's efforts that are happening in Yemen, that are happening in, in Jordan and parts of Syria, where people are going in and saying, how do we terraform and rehab and rehabilitate the natural world 
so that it can produce life in 10 to 15 years. Mm. That's the future, right? We have, to, we have to heal that when we talk about regeneration, it's gonna take hard work of getting people back to the land. And we, I presented this to the Islamic Development Bank. The Islamic Development Bank is, has the highest bond rating of any entity on the planet earth. And I said to them, is that your people don't want to riot and they don't want a revolution. They want to work. Hmm. They want a plot of land they can call their own. They want something that they can raise and grow so they can have some food for their family. And if you rehab and rehabilitate and regenerate the natural world, you will, your, your community and society will heal itself because that's what human beings do. We know how to work together in families and communities, but we need a little bit of something to work with. Hmm. Well, my brother, I want to I want to thank you for this time. I want to also give you this this time here to talk about. I don't want to just be hitting, hitting you all these all these questions here. I want you to tell the <laughs> folk. I want you to tell the folk what you got coming up next, what you're working on. Um, I want to make sure that 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 gets out there into the space, so you can be like, "Hey, I'm working on this project." You can you can you know I'm you know you can join me here. How you to connect is, with you and all that, all the all that good stuff. So that's a big present thing is that you know we have a big mayoral election. There's a lot of really good candidates, and I'm advising some of the people. Two thirds of New York City's city council is going to be changing over. It's like the largest changeover in city council in I think history. So you have all these new people running, and so a lot of the work I do is connected to um, infrastructure policy in New York City, um, and water and, and sewer infrastructure and energy infrastructure and transportation. So I'm working on different projects related to that. We have a project called the Equitable Commute Project that we've been scoping out. We're looking for funding as we speak now, trying to get 10,000 e-bikes and e-scooters into the hands of essential workers. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, so that's that's a fun one that you know we're trying to just find all the right partners for. Um, and then uh, there's a lot of exciting things happening within the environmental justice community. It's, you know, it's totally ascendant at the moment. Um, really pushing the levers of policy at the f- city, state, local, federal level in ways that, you know, we could never have dreamed of um, 10 years ago. So I think that um, right now it's just really sort of holding people accountable, you know, um, and then trying to drive, you know, there's a 30% goal in New York State, 30% of construction contracts have to go to MWBE, minority women-owned businesses. So I have partners that I'm working with and we're trying to really push the lever and make sure that people get into those conversations, that they're in those in the mix with that. Um, those are the things that I'm working on really like, we, you know, just back to that early conversation about what is our challenge here to build as people who are descendant of people that were taken into slavery. Um, we actually have to sort of just really just do simple, basic things. I'm not, I'm not a social justice warrior in the way that it's manifested now. I'm just much more, I feel like I'm much more of like, you know, we need to have long time, commitments around jobs and money and, um, and and we need to get people owning homes and economic opportunities because we need a couple generations of people just like are calm and slow and boring <laughs> and, and build some families that can produce some people facts. that can all right? facts <laughs> we just need a couple boring generations where it is not major upheaval um, and I think we're going to be fine but that so that's where my on my head is focused is just um it's really trying to hold government and also accountable, but then also my private sector partners really just drag them to the table in a way. So that, because now we have a lot of good policies in place, we just need people to really pull them over and say, this is actually, remember, this will actually strengthen the work that you're doing. This will make the work that you're doing better. Um, and then there's always things that I have on the side. I write poetry all the time. And, you know, God willing, in the short term, there's going to be some stuff coming out with some more of my creative efforts um, that will, you know, be good. And then the, the stuff that's most interesting to me right now, not most interesting, but the stuff that, you know, a lot of us are in this mode is that my, my sons are playing baseball. Okay. And, um, and so just getting out there and, and enjoying that, you know, putting the, leaving the phone in the car, taking the ball and the bat out and just enjoying space and time with, with, with young people outdoors. I, I fully encourage, you know, go to vistas, go on hikes, pray outdoors, you know, feel the breeze, you know, let yourself get soaked in the rain, jump in the water, you know, really just that, that to me is like the absolute most critical thing. We have to remember what it's like to be human. Mm, that's, listen, that right there is the most important thing. 
you need to remember that we need to be human. That's right. Uh, making sure you do what got to be done for the people. My brother, man, much love, man. This yeah, it was a really honor and a pleasure, man. You're, you're. I always keep track of what you're up to and and following you, and uh, you know, you're you're so consistent, and that's such a blessing. That to me, that's like the most important thing is is consistency. It's you know that dedication to the work and to the people. God bless you. Nah, you too. And that's our guest today. And he is Ibrahim Abdul-Mateen. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.